Hello everyone and welcome to the podcast A Childless World. Today we're going to talk about sex. But first, first, did you know that 90% of college professors say they are above average? Which of course is impossible. Still, I am above average, as a teacher I mean. But there is absolutely no reason on earth to think that I'm even a little bit qualified to talk about sex. Not that it has ever stopped me in the past. Hi, my name is David Duhamel. I'm a professor of economics at Parsons Paris and an adjunct professor at Sciences Po Paris. I tell stories of the world we're living in and even more about the world to come. A childless world. I call this episode The End of Sex, mainly to get you to click on it. I could have called it The End of Love. In The Banquet, Plato argues that originally humans were round hermaphrodites with four hands and four legs, two faces on one head and two genitalia, one of each sex. Apparently full of themselves, those prideful humans attacked the gods. Never a good idea to attack the gods. They were soundly defeated by Zeus, who, as punishment, cut them in two, separating men and women forever. This was born the myth of love, the innate desire for our other half, the idea that there is someone, somewhere, to complete us. A crock of bull, if you ask me. Still, for the longest time, love, sexuality and procreation were united. Then the pill was invented. For around 60 years now, one can have sex without risking having a child. But for the vast majority, you still cannot have a child without having sex. A quick disclaimer. In this podcast, I leave out the minority who doesn't use sex to have a child. And I'm not talking about the Virgin Mary here. I'm thinking of those who adopt, who use in vitro fertilization, and a portion of the LGBTQ. That's a lot of people, but it's still marginal in terms of global numbers. In essence, we have never been as free to have sex, free of social stigma, free of biological constraints. And yet, there is a paradox. According to all the studies, the young generation, Gen Z, is the one that has the least sex compared to their parents, Gen X, my generation, and especially to their grandparents. Society has never been so sexualized. Dating apps offer an infinite menu. No need to marry as virgins anymore. Oftentimes, no need to get married at all. On the contrary, you can meet people over and over again. This has never been so socially acceptable for a man, but especially for a woman. As Esther Perel, the famous couple therapist, says, monogamy used to be one person forever, now it's one person at a time. However, open your window, take a look outside. This is hardly the age of Aquarius. Quite the opposite. It's super quiet out there. Jean Twinge, Stanford professor of psychology, wrote a study in 2016 where it says that the average US adult was having sex 62 times a year in 1990 and 54 times in 2014, a 13% decrease. A 22 study conducted by Debbie Herbenick from the Indiana University School of Public Health, tells the same story. The story of a sex recession. 
In Italy, it seems worse. According to Chiara Simonilli, sexologist at the University of Rome, four couples out of ten are not having sex anymore. The Italian man is a culprit here. In Spain, they have even appointed a sexuality tsar to boost fertility. Guys, the Latin lover is targeted. And the Frenchman is not far away. I want to remind you of something super important. Something you probably know already. The decrease of sex is not necessarily bad news. First, what most researchers call sex is only genital penetration. Clearly, that shortchanges what sex can be. Second, if sex rates decrease because of fewer non-consensual, semi-forced relationships, arranged marriage, etc., that's cool. If it's a choice, it's great. But there are many reasons to believe that the sex recession is much wider than that. An increasing abstinence is not good demographic news. Not good news, period, because sex is cool. Psychologists and happiness economists know this. Among the activities that increase our happiness the most, sex comes out on top, by far, far ahead, from a distant second, which is listening to live music. Humans need physical connections. And in this regard, it's difficult to do better than sex. Okay, let's go back. Let's start with marriage. Traditionally, no kids out of wedlock. I say traditionally, but this is still the case in Asia. However, in China, the number of marriages has collapsed. Minus 40% between 2013 and 2019. Preceding by three years the collapse of births. Minus 47% between 2016 and 2022. Hard to miss the correlation. Chinese women, but really Asian women in general, are reluctant to get married, reluctant to become, at best, housekeeper of the household, at worst, servant of the in-laws. In Japan, where 95% of births take place within the marriage, it is not uncommon for the mother to set her futon in the baby's room so that the father is not disturbed. But falling marriage rates are everywhere. In the US, 44% of millennials, those born between 85 and 2000, are married, while 60% of their parents and 81% of their grandparents were married at the same age. While marriage rates are falling, divorce rates stay robust. In fact, in France, about 50% of all marriages end up in divorce. Married myself, I am grateful for the existence of divorce. Without it, wouldn't marriage be a prison? What I find interesting is how the reasons for divorce have changed over time. Esther Perel says that in the 80s, couples were divorcing because they were not happy, and now they are separating not because they are unhappy, but because they could be happier. This tells the story of a more demanding society where individuals have more freedom, but pay for this freedom with a feeling of instability and insecurity. If love and family is less certain, more susceptible to change, we will have fewer children. Divorce is also the multiplication of single-parent families. In most cases, it is the mother who finds herself with one or more children in her care. Having a child is now the best predictor of a woman's finding herself in a catastrophic financial situation, said Elizabeth Warren, a US congresswoman. 
Indeed, the numbers are insane. In 2019 in the US, the wealth of a single woman is around $65,000, compared to $57,000 for men. So, yes, single women are slightly richer than single men. On the other hand, the wealth of a single father is $59,000, roughly the same. What about single mothers? $7,000. Single women, $65,000. Single mothers, $7,000. Raising a child alone is the sad privilege of women, and it is making them poor, super poor. With marriages going down and divorces being common, single parenthood is bound to increase. Again, that's great if it's a choice. If chosen, celibacy seems great. Often people in couple dream of the single lifestyle, the grass being always greener elsewhere. Make no mistake, for one Leonardo DiCaprio, there are millions of single people who struggle. Again, the numbers are frightening. In the US, the rate of celibacy has increased from 22% in 1920, granted a long time ago, to 50% in 2014. In India, between 2001 and 2011, the number of singles increased by almost 40%. In Korea, the majority of adults aged 20 to 44 are single. You may have in mind Don Giovanni or Casanova, but with growing celibacy, we are seeing raising rates of asexuality. Asexuality is the fact of not having any sexual life. In the US, according to a recent study, Half of the young men between 14 and 19 years old have no sexual activity, not even masturbation. For women, it's almost 75%. In Japan in 2015, 43% of 18 to 34-year-olds are virgins. Again, if it's chosen, mazel tov. But that doesn't help demography at all. Now, how to make sense of this general drop in sexual activity? Anxiety, uncertainty, the pressure of modern life, living longer at your parents' place, etc., etc. But first among the accused, we find the usual suspects. Technology and young people. Plato already said a long time ago that young people are good for nothing. He must have been thinking about Aristotle, who was his student. Not the easiest man to please, Plato. Basically, screens would turn young people into user sludges. Bruno Patino, in La Civilisation du Poisson Rouge, The Goldfish Civilization, which I don't think it has been translated, tells how the goldfish can only concentrate for 8 seconds and the internet user for 9 seconds. Are screens making young people unsuitable for dating, undateable? After spending about 7 hours a day behind screens, Aren't they forgetting how to interact, IRL, in real life? Because to make a baby at some point, you have to start by talking to someone. I mean, preferably. Technological progress has made possible living a life outside of the world, a life without physical contact whatsoever. As usual, Japan, in front of us, is a window to the near future. And what do we see in Japan? One, technology makes it possible to do everything from home. Two, technology offers more and more possibilities to have sex alone. 
In Japan, inflatable dolls have not been inflatable for a long time, and male sex toys are common. Add to this the fact that Japanese women are more and more demanding, as they should be, and you understand that a growing number of Japanese young men stay at home without taking the risk of being rejected. And then there is Tinder, or rather the Tinderverse, the disenchanted world of dating apps. In the US, 40% of heterosexual dating and 70% of homosexual dating is done in the Tinderverse. In theory, Tinder and co. allows everyone to meet an almost infinite number of people. This should multiply your sex life. In theory. In practice, it's very different. Only a small minority engages in the sausage party. The vast majority is suffering in this supermarket where everyone is, at the same time, customer and merchandise. In 2015 on Tinder, there were 1,800,000,000 swipes and only 26 million matches. That is to say, a success ratio of 1.4%. 1.4%, not the best odds. And that's just the match. You still have miles to go. For men, much more numerous on the apps, their messages receive on average one response out of 113. And this is an average. In fact, among men, the top 20% reaps the spoils of that dating war. And for the others, nothing. The median number of messages for straight men on Tinder is zero. Half of the users have no messages. And yet, men stay on the apps because dating apps are gamified to make us addicted to the dopamine shot that is a like or better, a match. To be honest, a recent Pew survey from February 2023 suggests that half of the users have a somewhat positive experience. And those fresh-of-the-oven figures kind of contradict what I've been seeing elsewhere and telling you right here. Okay, but as an experiment, in your browser search bar, type... Tinder makes me feel, and see what comes automatically to complete your query. Tinder makes me feel depressed, ugly, worthless, bad, suicidal, anxious, etc. So let's not rely on Tinder to revive sexuality and behind it fertility. But blaming Tinder is too easy. Who could we blame for more? Pornography? Sure, why not? Pornography is everywhere. In 2007, the year it launched, Pornhub contained 134 hours of pornography. In 2019, almost 7,000. Not 7,000 hours, mind you. 7,000 years of pornography. Pornography is toxic, there's no doubt about that. But does it shape behavior? I don't know. Porn has been around for a long time. We knew the difference between real life and porn, and I think the younger generation is capable of it too. That said, in our uber-sexualized society, statistics on sexual practices are flourishing, and heteronormativity and patriarchy are rightly indicted. An imbalance that the Me Too movement is struggling to resolve. Women are ready to move on, but men are dragging their feet. As far as female pleasure is concerned, there is a lot to say and nothing to indicate that I'm well-placed to talk about it. But, as previously stated, that has never stopped me. 
Daisy le tourneur, in On ne n'est pas mec, on le devient, One is not born, but rather becomes a guy, which I think has not been translated yet, describes an imbalance of orgasms. 95% of straight men would reach orgasm against 65% of straight women, to be compared with 86% of lesbians. And the clitoris remains a largely unexplored continent. Most guys have heard of it, but from there to being able to put it on a map, you think I'm joking. Let me suggest an experiment. I dare you. At your next dinner party, ask your guests to draw a clitoris. Many of them, men and women, will be unable to do so. A penis, eyes closed. But a clitoris? Hmm. It's not surprising. We had to wait until 1998 for the first 3D representation of a clitoris. While the first dildo dates back, at least from the Neolithic. Female pleasure has never been a priority for men. And it still is not. Let's take a look at Google searches. When it comes to oral sex, women ask Google how to better perform oral sex. What do men ask? They ask how to explain to their women how to perform better oral sex. Men. Sometimes I wonder. Bottom line. Technology is making people, and especially young people, less skilled at dating. Sometimes allowing them to live completely beyond the physical world. Dating apps make sex less rather than more likely to happen. Young women aspire to other skies, more joyful and less patriarchal. Celibacy is becoming widespread, sometimes in an asexual version. And the couple, when it exists, is way more unstable than before. All those social evolutions are not definitive, nor bad, but for the moment they all push fertility down. It is up to all of us to invent fairer family institutions and a more peaceful, creative and gender-balanced sexual life. Well, you start on that. I have an origami class. This is the end of this episode of A Childless World Dedicated to Love and Sex. Keep following me in this exciting story. Subscribe, like, share, put up some stars. It always helps. And I'll see you in the next episode. And if you didn't like what you heard, share it anyway with people you love. <laughs>